Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the best podcast in the world. It was just rated that way by Zagat. Uh, if you look in the back of the appendix of a Zagat book thing, uh, there is a tiny one-page chapter called Podcasts. On that page, number one, with a bullet, secret skin. My name is Open Mike Eagle. I host this thing. I also rap, to, and um, this is release week. The album Hella Personal Film Festival is out this Friday. Uh, after the interview on the show this week, I'm going to leave you guys with the last piece to preview audio before release day. I love you guys. Skin intellectuals, principal skinners, skin interlopers, officers of Skinterpol. On this week's episode, we have an interview with Chuck Klosterman. Holy shit. But before we get to that, have a couple quest skins record your questions and send them all to omebooking at gmail.com here's one right now hey mike i've noticed that in the indie hip-hop circuit you have an outstanding reputation of being a nice and genuine individual my question is have you observed any positive or possibly negative effects this has had on your career that question comes from Mo Nichols. He's a DJ out of the East Coast. I know him from Connecticut and New York and being dope. He's also a really cool guy himself, so it's nice to hear him say a nice thing like that to me. Shout out to Mo Nichols. Uh, as far as my reputation goes, um, I probably am known as being one of the more personal, personable, <laughs> personable people. In the indie hip hop scene, which is only like seven people, by the way, there's only like seven people in the whole thing. So it's easy to be the nice one. <laughs> um, as far as positives, I do think I get a lot of support from the indie hip hop scene that maybe other people don't get because uh, I've traveled around a lot of places in it and done shows with everybody and, um, you know, just, I don't know, I've been in it for a long time. And I haven't had that many problems or issues with people. I like to try to communicate and all that jazz. Um, so positively, yeah, I think it gives me a certain level of support. You know, um, negatively, I do think I'm seen as approachable, which can uh, lead me into all sorts of conversations I don't really want to be in. Uh, but that's kind of just life in general for me. Anyway, <laughs> enough about how nice I am. Um, here's another question. Hi, Mike. This is Nathan from Seattle. Congrats on passing 50 shows. I wanted to ask, what's the best way to buy music to support an artist? I mostly listen to MP3s, but I'm happy to buy the vinyl if that gets the most money back to the creators, and I get a download code. Just please don't say buy the T-shirt. I have way too many T-shirts. No offense to T-shirt. All right, Nate. Oh, oh gosh. You went and did it, Nathan. T-shirt, calm down. Calm down. You heard what he said, though. I'm saying, though, just shit. You can't buy me? You can't buy no more me? Come on, man. What you trying to say? Too many T-shirts. Got kids to feed. Nathan, just don't mention his name. I know your email address. I will flame you. I will tell Mike something to write you because I don't have no hands. I won't I won't write it. Chill with that t-shirt slander. Alright, Nate. Well, alright, Nathan. I guess okay, t-shirts are out. You gotta watch what you say in the closet, man. Like he's he's right here. He's literally right here. But um there's no best way, honestly, uh, to support whichever way you would like to is fine. Um 
Yeah, I mean, whichever I, I would ask you to support via whichever way you most just like listening to musics. So if that's MP3s and buy MP3s, if that's vinyl, if you like the big, the big pretty packaging and the deep rich sound, then then that's you know that's what it is for you. Um, but yeah, man, uh, your your support and your question are very much appreciated. And uh, yeah, just uh, wow, T-shirt frazzled me there a little bit. Anyway, uh, we talked to Chuck Klosterman on the show today. And it was a pleasure and honor to talk to him. I'm a huge fan of his. I've read all of his books. I've read a couple of them twice. Um, there's just really, uh, and I and I tell him this too, there just aren't too many people who write about right now uh, with the kind of bent, the kind of perspective that he does. And, uh, and I appreciate it very much. And it was um, super cool to sit in his place in Brooklyn and talk to him for a while. Um, and we should get to that. Right now, his T-shirt is sitting in the corner making the angriest, angriest wrinkle face. There's a secret radio hour. Let me get a level from you. Do some talking for me. Okay. Well, just one, two, three, four. Do you get excited? Do I get excited? Get excited. Sometimes I get excited. How, what does excited sound like? Ah, uh, well, you'd have to. I'd have to feel it. You have to, to, do it. You have to manufacture like I can't just, excitement. Well, you know what, what is interesting is when I get whenever I've been interviewed for like newspapers yeah. or magazines, I notice the writer often includes a lot of exclamation points that you didn't. Well, I mean, that I, it's, it's it's like I can't gauge whether or not. I mean, I don't feel like I'm using exclamation points, but right. other people do. So maybe I'm super excited. Well, maybe what. It is is that your demeanor overall is super chill, so the least bit of register of excitement it comes could across. Be, like this except is where sometimes an interview goes. will include fourteen sentences by me, and six of them will have exclamation <laughs> points, which kind of makes it think I'm Gilbert Gottfried or something. <laughs> like I don't, I don't think I'm that nuts, right. but I must be, you know. Uh, we're here, Chuck Klosterman, at, at at his lovely house, his lovely home. Thank you for uh, inviting me in. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, man. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday. This person was a, is a stand-up comic. And uh, this person's wife is a musician. And he said that she explains to him that um, most of the talented people that she knows in the music business all have day jobs. And, and he contrasted it with his experience as a stand-up where, you know, uh, most guys he knows or gals, kind of regardless of talent level, just kind of based on how hard they want to work, mm-hmm. can kind of make that work for them. Although musicians have, for the most part, they've always made their money from touring right. and from merchandise. So right. that really, the, the, the decline of the music industry... I don't think has substantially hurt people from being able to make a living. One thing I would say about your friend and his wife, now I don't know who they are, sure. and I don't want this to, to sound condescending, but this is something that I have realized upon coming to New York, that the kind of person who is raised, for the most part, in a scenario by parents who are like, you should pursue music, mm-hmm. or you should pursue writing, or you should pursue any art. Some sort okay? of creative endeavor at all tends to come from people who are affluent. Mm -hmm. Working class people and and people without a lot of money, they tend to push their kid toward uh, a life where they say like, well, you can earn a living doing this. You get a job doing this. This is a a practical way to make money. But if you push your kid into art uh, or music or all these things, what that means then is that what that person is raised in, the atmosphere they're raised in, kind of raises the bar of what an acceptable life is. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you came from a household that made $35,000 a year and your mom didn't work, well, then making money as a writer or a musician or a comic seems very plausible. But if you come from a a household where your dad was a lawyer and your mom was a doctor, it feels like you're broke all the time. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes feel that the people in New York who complain about being broke are comparing themselves to a standard that the overwhelming majority of the country has no relationship to. What she was explaining to him was not necessarily that the snapshot of where they are today is just bad. It's, It's about kind of a comparison to how 
it used to be just a little bit it's a little while ago oh and the yeah. trajectory to where it's heading i mean so she might be an individual who in 1993 could have got signed to a label right been advanced the exactly. money you know the, the the 80s and the 90s were an interesting time for music because there were many artists who were living like rich people mm-hmm. even though they weren't earning that much money right. you know well and, and if i'm to bring it into my life uh, which i typically do <laughs> um there's a decent amount of money in it. Uh, the people at the top of it actually do pretty well. Um, but contrast this with 15 years ago, 2000, 2001. Um, there are people who I know in L.A. who had booming independent underground careers, largely based on the fact that they could sell 10,000 CDs a year. Uh, in the underground with these labels who were never connected to majors who were independent. And then when people in mass kind of stopped spending $10 on a CD, it really drastically changed their economy. Yeah. And I also, you know, I have a lot of writer friends and that from what I can tell, it's kind of similar since there aren't a ton of people paying for physical periodicals. Yes. There's a lot less money in the economy now. And I was just wondering, like, how is has that affected you at all? Like, is that change as pronounced from your vantage point in your industry? I sort of got into this just before the the widespread move away from physical objects right. in art really occurred. And because of that, I was able to sort of establish myself among the people who were selling physical books and right. could make money doing that. I suspect that if I continue writing books that eventually I will be advanced almost nothing, Mm -hmm. but given a larger percentage of the royalties, um, which will be okay for someone who is sort of guaranteed to sell a certain number of books as being an established. It's like you have enough name recognition and that, you know, that, well, even if that does poorly, you know, I'll sell X number of copies. The problem will be for the people trying to get in because I do fear that as advances go away, what you're going to see is the disappearance of complicated books that take time and need money for work. Like if somebody wants to do a book about, you know, what it's like to spend a year at base camp on Mount Everest, I don't know how that person does that book unless either A, they're already rich, right. B, they're essentially just writing a, a memoir or C they're willing to be Kafka and just toil in obscurity and poverty in order to get this book out. Yeah. And I, you know, and I see a lot of analogs in the music industry. People in my circle of friends used to kind of, we looked at that starting when MySpace happened, right? Cause MySpace was supposed to be this revolution and like, Oh, uh, we're, we can all kind of just push ourselves now. And we all have a profile and we're all, Starting here together, but it was like when you really looked at who was able to capitalize off of that, it was people who had already had record deals mm-hmm. who were able to already bring um, an established act and, and already had attention. They were able to like further garner and develop there. Well, and, and the thing that sucked about it, in my view, and now I hate saying this, I hesitate to say it because it can come off in a real bad way, but this is the thing that drives me kind of crazy about the way the, but social media has affected all of these arts. It is now assumed that you are going to publicize the hell out of everything you do, yeah. and the responsibility is yours, and if you're not willing to take that responsibility, the kind of people who put these things out are like, well, it's not really worth our time. Right. I mean, when I initially would write books, there was no expectation that I would try to sell it. (laughs) Like, you know, it was like I see a real difference between writing and publishing. Like I write because I love to do it. I enjoy it. It's interesting. It seems to be sort of part of who I am. It's a way for me to work through my thoughts, all of these things. Publishing seems like a different thing, which is about uh, making sure you sell enough books to continue doing the thing you like, which is writing. And when I began, those two silos were very separate. So now what happens is when a publishing house is, say they have five books and they're going to buy one of them, and they're all somewhere between good and pretty good and fair, and 
it's impossible, of course, to gauge how they'll really be successful. All they can do is go by what the one metric they have, which is how many followers does this person have on Twitter? And of course, you know, if you have 100,000 followers on Twitter, that's not going to translate into 100,000 or even 5,000 books. I mean, there's just this huge gap between the kind of person who will follow someone for free with nothing at stake and who will invest 20 some dollars. Um, but yet, because there's no other way to gauge the popularity of an unknown person, having a bunch of Twitter followers becomes a way to get a book published, you know? What you just said right now reminded me of this other moment that happened on MySpace. It was Ghostface, and I think he had just released his last, if not one of his last, Def Jam big budget Yeah, I think albums. it might have been. Two, I was still at Spin when that happened, so yeah. I think it was probably 2004. And um, the album came out and apparently didn't do very well the first week. And he made this video on MySpace, like, basically cursing out his fans. Like, I have... 15,000 friends here and the album only sold 678 units like what are you what are you guys doing here like what is this like what I have learned one person loving your work is worth 40 people liking it Hmm. so when you're making something you know you're in the process of editing or maybe you're mastering however you want to look at it there's often a push from people to sort of open the window or open the door a little bit to maybe pull in the casual person to make Mm. it more likable to an uninvested person. And I feel like that is generally a mistake because all it does is it lowers the likelihood that someone was going to find an extremely personal, intimate connection to your work and love it. You know, I think a lot of times when people are trying to increase their amount of sort of recognition through these uh, vehicles, they're overlooking the fact that they're sort of diluting the likelihood that people are going to intensely care. At this point in your career, does the thought or act of writing books still excite you? Yes, but less. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it still does. I still enjoy when it goes great. It's great. I I like the process of being by myself and and I like creating things and, and, you know, but it's not like it's unreasonable for anyone to think that the sensation of an experience is going to stay the same over time. I mean, I will never be as excited as when I received the first copy of my first book. Nor will I ever feel as rich as the time I got my first book advance, which was $25,000, which I, I only got half of. It's not as exciting, but it would be weird if it was. I mean, you know, a lot of times people will talk, say, about favorite records, and they'll be like, oh, you know, they'll go, I... I can't remember when I was excited about a new record the way I felt about, you know, when Kid A came out or some record that they had liked when they were 15. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. I mean, when you're a young person, you're still using art to sort of create who you are. When you're older in life, you are the person you are. So you can only sort of appreciate things on sort of a sophisticated intellectual level where you have distance from this idea that this record somehow reflects who you actually are. Which leads me to ask, what's your relationship to music? Well, you know, I, I have found that as I have gotten older, and I'm 43 now, that I tend to move backwards in music. In other words, when I was a young person, I was interested in what was happening right now. Mm-hmm. When I was a, a high school kid in the 80s, I loved hard rock and stuff, but... I didn't even listen really to Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin. I felt that those were bands of the 70s. Like right. It felt seem, disconnected from your reality. Felt, and it felt much older than mm. it seems now, even yeah. though it actually <laughs> is. You know, I will listen to contemporary music now almost out of pure curiosity. Like, I, I, I'm not even doing it because I, I have a real sort of emotional need, but I'm just like, I feel like I should know what's going on. And Spotify has 
radically changed my relationship to music. I agree. Yeah. Actually, I'm 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 yeah. having the same trip, yeah. like the same like two year long trip of like digging through the history of music through Spotify. Well, and it makes it real possible, and also takes away. Certain experiences that I know would be enriching to me, but I'm just not going to have now. Uh, for example, our, when my bloody Valentine record, Loveless, when I got that, the first time I played it, I did not find it interesting. It was one of those deals where if I had access to every other record that existed, I may have played it once. But because it wasn't the case, I put it in my car and I listened to it kind of just like, well, I bought it, so I'm going to get my 13 bucks worth. And now, of course, I love that album. And you get to a point where all of a sudden these things shift. Um, That used to happen to me all the time. There are many albums that I don't think I started liking until I had listened to probably around 100 times. Mm. And... Boy, I wonder when is the last time I listened to any given song more than 10 times in the span of a month because it almost seems wasteful to do so. In some ways, it's a bad thing to complain about because, you know, if you would have went up to me in 1988 or whatever and said, hey, uh, I have every record in the world in the basement. Do you want to come over? I would have been like, I want to live there. Right. You, can, you couldn't make it, you I, leave. I, in you? fact, I wouldn't, it would be, it's impossible to imagine right. this, right? And now that world exists. But at times I almost feel as though I should really investigate as much of it as I can. And it kind of maybe has taken away from the visceral pleasure of sort of falling in love with music almost by chance. Are there cases where a song hits you and gives you the sense of, oh, I really like the song and you keep listening to it. And then do you absorb it into your, into your personal canon of favorite songs? That happens when I am in an alien setting. Hmm. Like if I'm at somebody else's house, you know, like, oh, I was over at a friend of mine's house one time and somehow he played a, a song by the turtles called, uh, you don't have to walk in the rain anymore. And I heard the song and it was just great. I loved it. And I think I, I did sort of add it to the mental list of songs that you like. Although I feel like if I would have discovered it at home, I would have been sitting at my computer and it would have been a different kind of experience. And it does feel closer to work. Like you know? research. Yeah. But I'm not re- but research with no... It's like people who network but have no aspiration to move up. <laughs> they just like networking. I'm always shocked by these people. People who like networking, you know, they, it's fun to them. Yeah. Sometimes that feels like it. It's like I'm researching like uh, 70s progressive rock for a story. I'm not writing. <laughs> I'm just learning about, you know, it's like. Well, do you, because of your position in music critique, Do you feel any obligation to just know about things? I guess I feel a little bit of fear Hmm. more than obligation. This is just something that I think happens to all people. Whatever field that you have the highest degree of expertise in will also usually be the idiom with the highest amount of anxiety over what you don't know. Hmm. So I get more nervous writing about classic rock than I do writing about physics Mm. in a way. It makes no sense. But when I'm writing about physics, I'm coming at it from the straightforward position of, you know, I'm a dilettante. I don't know about this. I'm learning about this as I write about it. You're learning about it as I learning about it. We're having a shared experience. But if I'm writing about like, uh, you know, the band Rush or something, I feel like, well, there's sort of an expectation yeah, here absolutely. that I'm going to be almost airtight, both in my knowledge and in my uh, perceptions of this. Right. Um, and so I feel nervous about that. Does does rap music play into that at all? Do you, do you feel the same fear about knowing the ins and outs of that particular genre? Well, I feel kind of odd saying this, but... Um, Because of the way culture has changed, I'm very hesitant to write about hip-hop. Because I feel as though the risk-reward is sort of out of whack now. Wow, that's that's Yeah, because the penalty for writing something about hip-hop that is 
uh, misinformed somehow. Misinformed and, but it's not like if I'm wrong about alternative country. Right. If I'm wrong, <laughs> if I'm wrong about alternative country, people are like, this guy doesn't know anything about Uncle Tupelo or whatever. Like he just doesn't know. Right. But if you write something misinformed and particularly sort of either dismissive or too congratulatory about hip hop that can take on sort of a racial component Absolutely. that I just, uh, it, it's in my last book, I wrote a little bit about Kanye West and he's one of the few performers that I would feel comfortable doing that because of the magnitude of his success and his scale right. that he sort of moves into things far outside of, of hip hop where you know, I also wrote about, you know, like NWA and a little bit about Public Enemy. Same thing. I felt like those are things that, one, I had, like, firsthand knowledge of, but also sort of transcended a discussion about rap, you know. But I would be nervous about writing about Kendrick Lamar. I like that record, but I would be nervous the about The most it. recent record. Yeah. Um, I would think to myself, maybe I'm not qualified to do this. And unlike other things, that lack of qualifications could have an effect far beyond writing a bad piece. In that it would invite certain maybe accusations of not necessarily racism, but racial misunderstanding. Well, maybe initially racial misunderstanding, but if on the Internet, all that stuff then becomes polarized yeah. and, and, and distilled into flat out racism. And, you know, OK, am I worried about the person who is going to call me racist for reasons that have nothing? You know, probably not. But I do realize that this can have an impact on how the rest of your work is received. Mm. There are certain areas of the culture where if you make either a mistake or what is perceived as a mistake, or you just say something that someone doesn't like, so that they're going to sort of change it to, to have a different kind of meaning, to a person who isn't that invested in any of this and is just sort of kind of casually, you know, scrolling through sure. culture, if that's all they know about you, well, that's going to inform work that has nothing to, to do, do with, with it. That, yeah. I mean, it seems kind of cowardly even as I'm saying it, but I do worry about that. Like, I, I was a much more confrontational writer when I was younger because I sort of looked at it from the perception that the most important thing here is that what I'm saying is interesting. Mm -hmm. But now there is a real gamble with being interesting. I do see that the weird and dumb things, the opinions, you know, good or bad, are said about, you know, racial stuff, said about cultural stuff, said about, you know, like rap music, all of that. It's all said on the Internet. I do wonder if the dangers of being opinionated about rap music, for instance, keep acclaimed voices from talking about it. Then is there a certain part of the story of it that doesn't get told or doesn't get canonized? in a way that people pay attention to going forward, you know. Well, well do you feel hip-hop criticism has shifted over the last 10 years? Because I have, feel it has. You know, I, I, it might be hard for me to answer that, because I'm maybe I'm not certain where it was 10 years ago. Uh, well, okay, because hip-hop is sort of, it's overtaken rock and pop sort of as the, sort of the center of youth culture. Pop, okay. Youth pop culture. Yeah. Okay, movement. so yeah. it kind of has a, like an inherent importance because we view it as sort of being reflective of the way people think now and sort of as a kind of an inroads into the culture you know like when chuck d would say like hip-hop is like the scene in the black community that seemed like a kind of a fringe idea when he said it everyone accepts that now right. you know because of that a lot of people writing about hip-hop seem to actually be interested in writing about many other things besides music and it mm. seems as though a lot of hip hop writing is really about identity politics or it's about like when the when the new uh, Drake video came out, you know, <laughs> I read about that a lot before I saw it. Likewise. Yeah. Same here. And then what I actually saw didn't seem that close to the things that I had seen written about. I mean, it was the same guy, but it didn't seem that. Or, I mean, this isn't necessarily hip-hop, but I really had this experience with The weekend, 
where I read many pieces. This is about the R and B group, The Weekend. Yeah. Just for listeners who may not yeah. be aware. Yeah. Um, there was just an, an avalanche of pieces about this guy. So then I play the record, and it felt as though the person and the ideas I had been reading about were barely reflected in this album. You know, uh, speaking of the weekend, um, somebody interviewed me for this Playboy article where they were talking about alt R&B, or they called it like PBR&B or some something that I hadn't, I wasn't aware of. But it was basically artists like the weekend and a couple other acts that were similar in that they were kind of marketed in this alternative R&B thing. And all that really meant to me and all it's ever meant ever since I first saw The Weeknd and how I noticed very quickly like, oh, this is a person making R&B music that is being marketed primarily to like white people. They're not going this traditional urban radio, urban route presentation. It was the same exact music. So it seems like probably the marketing people around him kind of creates this space where that sort of discourse can start where by the time the major album comes out, there's all this history of all these, oh, this is different, this is this, this is that, and then, okay, creates the soil for all of these ideas to be written about this product that may or may not be that actually revolutionary. But what I would want is somebody to listen to it and write that. (laughs) Like, man, I've been hearing that this guy is different. Not really that different. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, well, part of it has to do with just the, the pure amount of space that now has to be filled. I mean, okay, so say you know, Rihanna came out with a new single. Say, let's say she did. Say there's a new Rihanna single. Well, it's not as though that this would be considered and written about by four significant places. You know, it would be written about by 14,000 less significant places. So how do you get noticed within hmm. 14,000 people. Well, you either have to basically argue that this single is the best single that anyone's ever heard ever, or that this is awful and it's, uh, it's an embarrassment and it seems like it you know, validates her relationship with Chris Brown, something really crazy. Right. So then once somebody says something really bombastic, whenever you're talking about that individual, you almost have to sort of recognize that this belief does exist. And the result was like these things I was reading about The weekend, where it's not uncommon that people writing about music sometimes might have more ideas about the music than the creator. That just happens sometimes. Absolutely. You know? I watch that with my own work all yeah, the time. You know? But this gap was even greater. I mean, it was like a real, <laughs> like it seems like when people love a single now, the idea is to just be like, this is bananas. This is everything. I can't live without this. If you're not listening to this record now, unfollow me. You know, stuff like that. That's not really an expository explanation of anything. The options are just unbridled enthusiasm where there really is no specifics or an incredibly minuscule detailed deconstruction over why this person is bad for the world. Hmm. Those seem to be the two main ways to write about hip hop now. (laughs) So the experience that I have with the music just doesn't seem anything like the experience that I have as a, as like a consumer of criticism. And it's it's real weird for me. I would venture to say that your experience probably matches most people's though. If you look at America as a consumer culture, there's, a few people who this music is perfectly matching their cultural experience and um, a few people who just are so far away from it and and they're voyeuristically like oh I just got to be a part of that and then there's this vast swath of people in the middle who either hear it and it either sounds cool to them or it doesn't but it's not really something that's real in their life. I mean, and of course, hip hop spans all these different cultural experiences, so it's 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 hard to make that narrow statement. Well, but you know, that's that's not new. I mean, okay, in the in the 70s and 80s, people would be talking about rock records in an extremely serious way. Sure. You know, uh, what is the meaning of this REM record? Um, you know, what is the meaning of this Joni Mitchell record, all of these things. And for most of the populace, of course, it was like, well, you know, I like ACDC cuz they rock. <laughs> and I don't like Quiet Riot because they don't rock. And that's as far as it goes. Right. And criticism is not supposed to do that, right? right. You're not like, like it, it would be pretty weird if there was a magazine and they reviewed every album and all it was was like listing. It's like, 
this sucks. This doesn't suck. That was the thing about Beavis and Butthead. Beavis and Butthead seemed to sort of be MTV critics that were actually speaking the language of the majority of the fan base. That they thought that, you know, that, that they liked something or they didn't. And the reasoning was almost self-evident, like they could tell when they heard it. But now, like with this example with The Weeknd, I think to myself, if somebody just heard that music and they were like, I kind of like this, I'm not sure why, I'm going to go on the internet and read all this stuff. The things that they would have read about how that music was categorized and what it was supposedly saying about modernity and relationships and privilege and all of these things, I think if they went back to the record, they would literally be confused because it would be almost as if you ate a banana and then you read about bananas and you were somehow convinced that bananas actually tasted like pork chops. <laughs> and then you went back to bananas and you were like, well, no, I know this is supposed to taste like a pork chop. I've got to figure out a way for me to reconcile that it doesn't. So I either have to accept that I am wrong about how I am consuming this or i do the thing which most people do which is to be like critics are stupid and i know she'll be the death of me at least we'll both be numb and she'll always get the best of me the worst is yet to come but at least we'll both be beautiful and stay forever young this i know this i know she told me don't worry about it she told me don't worry So backwards. Uh, and now, has that always been the case where at this point, the narrative is informing almost the experience of the consumer when they go to try to. I don't know, I guess. Why would you? Why would you? OK, if you hear something you like it, you go try to look for things about it. And I guess I do that, too. But I don't know why exactly I do that. OK, I worked at Spin magazine in the 90s when Spin was a magazine. They would often write about a record before it was available to almost anyone. Right. So for many people, like the first time they heard about the band Pavement, they read about it like in a magazine like Spin. So they would read essentially a, like the idea of this is what this music is, this is what it's like, this is the kind of person who likes it, this is sort of its, uh, you know, its unspoken cultural ideology, all these things. And then they would hear the record and they would sort of have this pre-existing idea of what it is, and that's what they would hear. Then there was also mainstream music that they would just hear on the radio. You would just hear Thriller or Pyromania or these records on the radio. So you would have this full experience, and then later, as something proved to be popular, proved to be successful, then there would be people who would go back and say, like, well, okay, this is why thriller matters and this is why bad matters and and you have to know thriller to understand what's all of these things. Okay. Well now the, the records that are written about and taken the most seriously are the most straightforwardly pop albums. Right. Because what happens is these writers want to write about things other than music. And that's easier to do if the product doesn't really have a meaning. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're listening to a Katy Perry song, the lyrics are pretty straightforward. The music is pretty straightforward. But if you want to write about the importance of unions and like the labor movement. You can almost read anything you want into this song because it doesn't have any kind of like the agency of the artist is not the same, but it's taken super seriously now. And I think part of it has to do with people's desire to want the freedom to kind of make anything into what they want. Gosh, it seems so dangerous though. Well, you know what? It's particularly dangerous. A lot of times I've noticed in rap because I have seen what, from my vantage point, appears to be people attempting to make very deep, substantial interpretations of things that were obviously made with very little thought at all. Like, a guy wants to just make a song that bangs and not really say much on it. He wants to put it on in a room full of people who get it, and everybody just lose their shit. And then you get a writer that comes along and is talking about 
misappropriated black rage or something. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, it's, it's so weird. It's dangerous. It seems dangerous for me to put everything on a pedestal of cultural import. Well, it, and it, but it gets confusing. The one example I often remember is uh, the song Ha by Juvenile. When I first heard that song, the main thing I noticed was his repetition of the sound Ha. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like he was just using this as an instrument, like he was using his voice as an instrument. Then I saw the video, and the video seemed to suggest that that there, was, that there yeah. is something here, right? So then I was like, well, okay, this is an example where my initial reaction may have been shallow. And uh, now I'm seeing that the words matter more to me now, and I've, I've got to rethink about the fact that ha is not just a vocal sound, but there's a representation and there's a meaning to this, okay? But what I would say that seems different now is that that belief in the social import or the meaningful of it is sort of the starting point now, that we're right. supposed to sort of start from that. Like, what would you say the danger is? I, I wonder sometimes if giving that too much cultural import allows, it invites people to like, look for something where there really isn't anything, you know? I don't like the idea of people using art as a vehicle to actually just express their worldview and that they're going to listen to records and any record they like, well, that supports my worldview. Any record I don't like, well, that's obviously reactionary and it obviously opposes my worldview. I'm just going to make this true. But it's tough, you know, it's an unconscious thing sometimes. I mean, it would be insane for me to say that when I write about music, somehow I am doing it from a completely emotionally detached position. Absolutely. I try. I try to be that way. But then even that seems a little peculiar. Like I'm trying to remove the emotional reaction from an experience that most people like because it's a surrogate for emotion. Yeah. It's like, what's the right way to listen to music? Well, I don't know if there's a right way to listen to <laughs> no. it, but as a person whose work I've read, reviewed more times than I would like to admit, I tend to be most comfortable, negative or positive, if the review does come from a personal place. Like, this, I think, is good or not good based on how I like things. Well, as, a, as the person making the art, there's another reason you appreciate that, I, I suspect, which is that if somebody reviews my book from a real personal perspective, it really mitigates the reality of any negative things that they say. Right. Like if somebody says that they hate my book, that's fine. It's very different than somebody who says, this is a bad book right. for these non-subjective reasons. Absolutely. You know? And it's a kind of the irony, this is in journalism. When you're at a newspaper, there is a real kind of institutional dislike for first-person writing. And they have all these reasons that it's self-indulgent, but also that it takes away from the possibility of objectivity and it's more celebrity-driven. But the thing that is most maddening is that readers respond to it so much more. (laughs) I mean, readers will respond to bad first-person writing more immediately and more deeply than the most well-written, distanced third-person writing. So, like, you know, if I look at your work, for instance, your voice, your taste is very present in all of that. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like it demeans anything you say. Actually, it feels like it makes it all the more real. And I think your lucidity in terms of you kind of having an understanding of how your tastes have been shaped to me like that is like that's the goal in terms of me reading somebody's opinion you know what i mean Well, like with my first book that was i wrote that while i was a newspaper reporter and at the time i felt real limited by the rules of journalism i felt as though i was constantly having to sort of express the collective view of things and not the personal view and there was certain language i couldn't use and uh, I had to explain things that I felt were self-evident and that to me, if the reader didn't see them as self-evident, they weren't going to like any of the things they wrote afterwards. Right. You know? So then I had this chance to write a book where those things were gone. And I think for the first three books I wrote, they were pretty personal. 
that I wrote very, very strictly from my own ideology, kind of. And now I may be slowly moving back in the other direction. Really? Yeah. Now, why is that? What, what force makes that of, of value to you? I think what has happened is I have found that the writing I like is now further from that personal perspective. That's very interesting. Um, I wrote the first, that first book in 1999. And, you know, so now that was, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, 16 years ago. If somebody reads that book today and runs into me, that book happened now. It happened in their present. It like it's not like being a, it's not like being an actor where if I made a movie in 1999 and somebody saw me now, they would visibly see that I have aged. Right. So you know, you change as a person over time, but your books stay frozen. That's both the good and a bad thing about doing it. You know, it's almost like this book. I'll have a book coming out next year. In in a way, I'm unconsciously saying, I'm willing to take the way my mind works now and put it in public forever. Right. To some people, if they only read this book, I'll always be that person. I can remember when I first um, started reading you, I could remember really being so excited and I can remember like, man, I want to find other people who write about right now like this and not really being able to find anyone. Did you feel like you had a peer group or people who were kind of doing anything similar to you? Not really. The books that I write are the kind of books that I wish existed but don't. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll read somebody and I'll be like, God, this person is great. But I don't think to myself, I wish I wrote this way. I think that a lot of books are ineffective in the way ideas are delivered. Uh, I would do them differently. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, even the books that I think are good, I would often write them differently. You go through these periods, and there was a period in the 90s when I was obsessed with David Foster Wallace. And prior to that, there'd been a period where I was obsessed with Raymond Carver. And, you know, before that, I'd been... Douglas Copeland, you know, there's these people who I would go through these periods where I would be obsessed with their work. And then at one point that just stopped and I stopped <laughs> being obsessed with other writers. And that's, I think, kind of when I started writing books myself. Okay. You, you were a music writer for a long time, a journalist, uh, newspapers, magazines. Do you still feel like you're part of like the music critic community? Not really. I just don't feel like it anymore. My interests went in one direction, and the core philosophy of what is important about music writing went in a different direction. Like, I actually had a conversation with a music writer. He said, well, you know, when you kind of got into this, and he's saying like the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, he's like, the goal of music writers was to break out. Can you write for non-critics hmm. because the overwhelming majority of music critics write for other music critics it's a very insular world sure. okay. so the idea was would it in any way be possible uh to write about music in a way that it's just not other critics who care but the average consumer that just some person who likes music will be like i want to read this individual that was sort of the dream but he goes that's not how it is now he goes, now because of the internet, we can build our own community, and we only have to write for each other, and now we can do the real work. What's the real work? Well, the real work, in his opinion, would be that now we can sort of talk about these records in almost an academic sense, and that we can really get to the core of questions about authenticity and See. all these things. And uh, to me, when he said this, when he wrote this, I actually thought to myself... This guy is a moron. Like, I can't, <laughs> like, is this satire that he's actually, like, I, I understood it. And then I thought about it for a while and I was like, well, I guess in one way he has a point. If your goal for being involved in, in criticism is to sort of think about art in a deeper, more complicated way that maybe uh, eventually gets to the essence of why anything is good or whatever, you know. 
But in that case, I don't see why you need to be involved in the publication of writing about it. You can just think about it. Right. Okay, in the past, if you wrote something for the Village Voice, you would just wonder, did anybody care? You had no idea. Well, now you have like 700 people who follow you and will tell you it was great and mm. say, I want to talk about it. You know, even though less people actually cared, you actually have vocal people telling you that they did. Um, and I think there's more of a real positive reinforcement. And it's made the world smaller. I do feel like we have an understanding about how we consume culture differently and how we think about things differently and the acceleration of, of discourse and all that stuff. But what I don't think we're aware of is how having that experience is changing the way people think about things that have absolutely no interaction with technology. But we've been changed as people, and therefore it manifests itself in these ways that are just bizarre. Do you have any uh, other evidence or, or maybe hints of how you think that change has taken place? Okay, so before we were talking about like Spotify and sure. how this has changed, uh, you know, music from a the perspective of the person who's making it and from the person who's, who's consuming, consuming it. it. Okay, well, what is the real sort of net effect of that? Well, the net effect is that it, in some ways, while giving us like a, a wider view of the musical landscape, it probably does slightly devalue music in a sense because it's if. I have access to 80,000 songs instead of 80. You know, maybe the, the importance of that one song is less. How does that make the person raised in that environment think about the value of anything they hear that can't necessarily be quantified? In other words, if they go on the subway and they hear someone playing a violin, busking, you know. Yeah. Now that... I don't think this is going to affect whether or not this person puts a quarter in there or not. But I wonder, as they hear that music, if because it was devalued by this technological mechanism for totally understandable reasons and with some upside, sure. you know. But I wonder if as they hear that music, the idea that this was like a deep creative venture that took a huge investment of time and that this person's probably identity is intertwined with their ability to do this and maybe their whole life the only thing that made them feel like they were a valuable member of society was their ability to play this instrument that not a lot of people had access to not a lot of people could do and they did it and now this is maybe a way you know i wonder if those things which no one consciously thinks about ever right. i don't think of those things consciously but is there part of me that is hardwired to know that the ability to play violin in public is fucking hard and that right. this is a rare thing, sort of. And if I had been, if I'd been raised up in a world where the value of those songs was less, would that hardwiring not exist? And that the sound of that violin wouldn't seem as different than the sound of the passing train mm. or the sound of footsteps or all of these things. Now, I'm describing this in a way that makes it seem like this is worse in a pejorative way that like the way I experienced it was somehow, you know, I don't know if that's true. I used to have this kind of ongoing theory that all technology has a positive impact in the short term and a negative impact in the long term. I'm a little less confident in that. I now just think that the main thing it does instead of making things better or worse is just different. Mm -hmm. And it's, sort of short-sighted to assume that something different is necessarily bad. Everyone realizes that. But it feels bad to the person who's used to something. Right. Like the, I would never give up the internet. If you leave my apartment now and the internet breaks, um, I'll be pissed all day. Me too. I'll make phone calls. My whole life will seem out of whack. I won't really know what to do. It'll make it impossible to work. The internet is more essential to my life than any other mechanism. And I don't like it. It doesn't make me feel good. Like, I can tell it doesn't make me feel good. And I, I, I don't know how to reconcile that. I just, I don't know how to, to get around the fact that I think the world would be better if no one had this. But if I didn't have it, I'd lose my mind. Right. I go out with dinner with people. And 
it annoys me when they check their phone. Of course. But every time they check their phone, I want to. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. I don't see these corollaries in other aspects of my life. I never had that experience before where something that I don't like about other people is something that I want to do when I see the unlikable act. How come you don't like it? I don't know. I, I think the idea of being connected with everyone is maybe something I, I didn't want. I mean, before it existed, I didn't think yes or no. Right. The idea of being connected to everyone wasn't a possible thing. Okay? So then suddenly it exists. I think that part of what is is sometimes disturbing about the internet and technology is the sense that it doesn't feel as though we have an option about it. We feel like we're being dragged along with it or dragged into it. Well, what are the forces dragging us? I guess for me, a lot of the pre-existing desires I had, hmm. the desires that were there before the internet was around, like I wanted to be a writer, right? So to be a writer now with no relationship to the internet, it could be done. I mean, like Jonathan Franzen says that like, you know, he doesn't use the internet at all when he's writing, you know, maybe that's true. I, I, but it's weird. Even as I'm saying it, I'm kind of <laughs> skeptical, you know, it's like, I think it, it just, it's not Kurt Vonnegut said one time that like, if you don't write about technology in your fiction, you're kind of like the Victorian writers who didn't write about sex mm. in that years later when those books are consumed, the only thing people care about is the sexual subtext. That's everything, like in those Jane Austen novels. Mm. They never wrote about sex, so that's all it is. And if you don't write about technology now, in the future, that's all the story is going to be. If I wrote a novel uh, and I went out of my way to not talk about the Internet or cable television, or the changes in television, or, or any of these things, if it were to somehow survive in the future, all it would be was what's not there. So is that saying it kind of, in, in a sense, the true story of us and our values is like what was happening with technology? Like, is that part of who we are and what we pay attention to, is what's going on with our technology? During this period of time, yes. That wasn't always the case, but there are times when it was. Mm -hmm. Like during the Industrial Revolution, for example, I would think anything, any art from the Industrial Revolution, if you were to uh, critically think about it now, you would have to sort of tie it to the things that were happening in the world. Uh, as we wind down, I'm just going to get real specific. Yeah. So you're at, the, you're at the dinner table. Yeah. I picked up my phone and check it. Yeah. Like, why don't you want me to do that? It sort of reminds me that your mind is only partially here mm. and now, but here's the deal. It's hypocritical of me to say that your mind is only, partially is only partially there. And I am also wondering what is happening outside of the table. But I guess now I am nostalgic for the period. I would not want to return to where the table was all there is mm. where that if your mind was elsewhere, you were daydreaming. Right. And you know, sometimes I do wonder if one of the losses from this Technological evolution that's been great for society on the whole order. It's like, I think we daydream less. Because when I'd be writing, if I couldn't come up with something, I would just sort of stare into space. Now I check nine different things. Mm. My mind is always occupied. I don't spend as much time spacing out. And I think someone could listen to this and be like, this person's complaining that they're not spacing out. But it's like, that could be important. I think for creators, it's of the utmost importance, especially as a writer. Yeah. Um, you have to have ideas, and ideas have to generate in some time space. I just wonder, is the truth of our minds not being present in a moment, is that a truth that we could all ever live in? Like, in that not being an offensive thing somehow? It might not be true at all. It might be that... All of these things that I'm sort of describing as a sort of this detrimental thing is actually engaging us in a way that is exponentially greater than it used to be. And that when we see people multitasking, young people multitasking, all that is proof is that they're now able to have multiple lives simultaneously, that the life that's right in front of them is not the only one. But is there something that yeah. scares you about that? My reaction is definitely that of a fearful person. I would guess as you're listening to me talk, if somebody said after this conversation, what did that guy talk about? I think you would be very justified being like, well, he seemed kind of fearful about technology. I think that is the way I'm expressing it. I don't know what my fear is. Probably, sadly, it is this. I am afraid 
that the way I have lived my life is accidentally wrong. Ooh. And that I didn't even know it. And I'll never know it because we can't know these things. Can't know. Like, I feel like my life turned out so great. Like, I feel so fortunate. I can't believe it happened. I can't believe you came to my house to talk to me. Today. This I is can't still, believe you let me. Well, <laughs> what I'm saying is, like, I'm still not no. used to this. Now, I guess I sometimes see the world changing, and I don't like the change. And I guess it's because it is just evidence that the experience I had only mattered to me. Mm. That there's nothing neutral about it. There's nothing objective about it. There's nothing about the way my life has worked that somehow reflects what the experience of being alive is. Every experience is the experience of being alive. And maybe it mitigates the way I feel about my own life. But I don't, I mean, these are things that I'm talking about as if I was someone else. Because <laughs> I, I have, I never think about them. Like I never, I never think to myself, God, you know, it's the way my life worked out is, is, is this false or something? Like I, I'm not like that. But why do I care that a guy looks at his phone at dinner? Do I really even care at all? If I had been raised in a way when everyone did that, would it not seem strange? Is it just, is it purely socialization? Is it because I know other people are annoyed by it? And somehow I align myself psychologically with them? It's just all these things that make me just fear like I just don't know what's happening. Mm. <laughs> and that, folks, I think is a great place to end. Let's end in fear. But no, uh, man, I've, I've taken a lot of your time. I appreciate oh, you allowing me in. And um, yeah, uh, is there anything that you'd like people to be aware of? Definitely. Well, I have a book coming out. Do you know around? I guess you wouldn't in, know in when, June, of course. In okay. June. Okay. It actually probably unconsciously informed a lot of this discussion. The title of the book is "But What If We're Wrong," hmm. and I feel like it turned out the way I wanted to. I mean, I, you never know when, as I probably with records, you know, sure. like you're, when you're creating it, it seems awesome. Yeah. And then you, by the end, you're like, I hate this. <laughs> like right now, it feels like this is the first time it's either the best book I've written or the first one that isn't bad. Like I can't tell. <laughs> now, I don't know if I'll feel that way in June. But right now, I'm like, I feel like it worked. Like the book that I had in my mind actually came out, which is the first time I felt that way, probably since Killing Yourself to Live. Yeah. Okay. So, well, awesome. I, I mean, I, of course, can't wait to read it. I tend not to have much to read when when you're not writing much, man. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate your your singularity there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and thanks a lot, man. And I really appreciate it. You bet. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my talk with Chuck Klosterman. Um, a big thank you to him once again for sitting down with me on the Secret Skin. You guys, uh, we're gonna have a season finale coming up soon. A season finale we're going to take a little time off we're going to retool i'm going to come back with some new secret goodness in just a little while but in the meantime like i said this week hella personal film festival my new album with producer paul white uh is out this friday and uh we just released a song the last preview audio yesterday with um aesop rock who's been a guest on this show um and I want to share that with you guys, the listeners, the uh, members of Skinterpole, the Skinterlaced Fingers, the Skinternational Highway System, the Skinformation Super Highway. The song is called I Went Outside Today, produced by Paul White and featuring Aesop Rock. And I'll talk to you guys next week on your favorite podcast. Even if it's not this one, I'm just going to show up to whatever that one is. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, I feel so fly today. Emerge from my very narrow heel toe hideaway. My bad, like what people that still old lie to say. I told the emperor to get real clothes right away. I'm focused enough to knit a whole sleeper quilt. Train tunnels moving through people like a Peterbilt. I found where all of my confident voices are. I'm feeling free, 20 pounds on my oyster card. 
gone here with my Dwayne Wayne looking ass I'm on a stupid mic stand carved from a wooden staff I'm trying to relive days that I couldn't grab I looked up when Lena Dunham said and I shouldn't have I don't know how I ever faced the eyes as a child I played grab ass and shot paper wads I'm matriculated up by the grace of Bob Musilix Macramate Cricket and Decropage I'm trying to find true moments Rick Martel's cologne can blind you, Hogan. The American part of my mind's too swollen. If I was a fun, I would hate Times New Roman. I travel light like a choir can't. A modern satellite's equipped to spy on a fire ant. Which is cool, cause them fuckers is dangerous. I'm trying to learn to face fuck. Peter Piper picked the purple stuff before the sunny D Summer pants, all of my receptors up and under siege Itchy middle fingers, triple the up the ugly tree Snap, crack, Sean to the closest blooming onion Reclusive Cooper's moving out the dungeons in the Gundam Money run along, sleeves up, T-Row on his upper arm Sneak around a thousand crows, peppering the front lawn Bite a bat's head off the four doors Forward to the recipe, bork, bork, quarter and jaw, everything, orbit a feeling biosphere, pioneer a pestilence, my stylist is a science fair, the future primitive is sketching off the pace car, rebel yell except for when he whistled by the graveyard, if I ain't home, wipe and spittle up the space bar, I'm trying to be the first jarred brains on a face card. <laughs> <laughs>